Hi, Tobias Carlisle here. I've launched a new firm called Acquirers Funds. We implement the Acquirers Multiple in a highly liquid, tax-efficient and capital-efficient way. If you'd like to learn more, go to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Joseph Boscovich. He is a co-founder and partner at Old West Investment Management. They've got some very interesting positions on. They're like owner-managers. We're going to talk to Joe right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. Hey, Joe. How you doing? Hey, Toby. Thanks for having me. My absolute pleasure. So, Tell me a little bit about Old West. How did you get started? What's your focus? Yeah, so you know, kind of the, the genesis of our process um, original originated in the late you know 1970s. So I I work with my dad. I'm partners with my dad, and uh, my dad in his early 30s he was invited to sit on the board of a small regional Southern California bank called Santa Clarita National Bank, and and um, so so the first several quarters on on that that board he noticed the chairman of the bank ferociously buying stock and um decided that he buy alongside of him so he did and put a significant amount of money into that that bank at a young age and fast forward several years uh santa clarita national bank sold the first pacific bank which then sold the bank of america and he made a lot of money at a at an early age and i think the you know the lesson learned uh, for him at that point was um, no matter how much you think you know about a company, no matter how sound your analysis is, you probably don't know as much as the people running that business. And, um, you know, it's funny in my career, I've seen that time and time again um, uh, with other managers, investors that I know. Um, one of my uh, uh, colleagues or uh, a manager of another fund um, had a position in the company, thought he knew everything about that company, uh, joined the board and talked about in one of his, his letters how once he joined the board, he was so shocked to, to find out how little he actually knew about that company. So, so you know, we, we do our own analysis, put together our own thesis, but at the end of the day, realize that maybe the people running those companies know no more than we do. So when you look at our process... Um, I mean, fairly simple, but we focus on owner managers and we don't want to overpay for those businesses. So as a first principle, um, we want to make sure that all of our investments are run by management teams who have more to gain or lose, uh, from their ownership than they do for, for the, from their compensation. So, you know, I tell people typically the first document that we would look at is the proxy statement and, and, uh, you know, within the first 30 minutes of reading through a proxy, 90% of the companies just kind of get tossed into the trash can and we move on. Um, the 10% that, that, you know, pass that proxy test, uh, then we uh, do a deep dive and, and um, really try to understand those businesses better. And, you know, at the end of the day, 
uh, a name could come into our kind of focus in, in in a number of ways, but oftentimes we we source ideas, you know, first and foremost from from SEC Form Four filings, thirteen E filings, thirteen F filings, and and simply if if we see a CEO. Um, you know, buy $5 million worth of stock in his own company, it doesn't mean we're going to blindly follow him into that investment. But, but uh, maybe there's something there. And it's, it's up to us to figure out what that uh, owner manager sees in his own business. So you're looking for you want an owner manager who has uh, where you think the company is undervalued as well. And then additionally, you're looking for some insider buying on top of that and that can come through the sec form four or the 13 d's or f's yeah so it doesn't have to be insider buying um that would be how we might screen for a name but you know there's a lot of companies that that we own where maybe there's not insider buying but the ceo already owns 20 percent of the company or there's a there's an outside investor um that we have a high regard for that that has a significant stake so you know this could be you know, Warren Buffett, John Malone, Bill Sturridge. But, you know, if you see someone like that, that already has a big stake in the company and, and that hasn't changed, um, you know, maybe there's something there. So oftentimes we'll try to re- reverse engineer that idea. So let's go through your portfolio a little bit. Uh, yeah. The, from the, the filings that I had a look at, your biggest holding at the moment is a, is a put in Tesla. And so that's an interesting one because we've just been talking about uh, an owner manager, and Musk is certainly a big owner manager. So, what's the what's the thesis there? Yeah. So, right, Elon Musk is an owner manager. Um, he owns a lot of stock in the company. Um, uh, you know, keep in mind when you look at the 13F filings, it shows the notional exposure. So, you know, on the on the short side, um, or or in terms of protecting the portfolio. Uh, we look for, you know, situations where we could outlay very little capital, um, but but the payoff is big. So so we, we do own deep out deep out of the money puts and we roll those over um, every couple of months. We don't actually currently have that position on right now, um, you know, but the idea is that we outlay very little capital. I think it's just it's, um, you know, maybe 10 or tw- 20 basis points of capital. And and if we are right, that could pay off. Um, uh, significantly, I got you right. So, the uh, the the next biggest position is RFL. Uh, Raphael, uh, talk to me a little bit about that position. Yeah, so it, it's grown into um, a big position. I actually just was listening to your podcast with um, Ian Castle uh, a couple of weeks ago, and. Uh, both of you make some great points about, uh, you know, trimming your winners, you know, too early. And so, you know, that that's uh, at some point, I think we we would trim back that position, but but don't want to do it prematurely. I think there's a you know, there's a lot of potential there. But our investment in Raphael, it's 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 really, um, you know, more of an investment in, in someone that we think is a great owner manager. And his name is Howard Jonas. And, you know. It's it's funny if you, if you look at the investment landscape. Imagine if you, if you built a portfolio where you identified great owner managers and capital allocators, and you kind of um, invested alongside them. So think of you know someone that um, you know invested with John Malone 30 years ago, and 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 kept all of his spins and and really watched him closely. Um, you've done very well. Imagine had you invested alongside Warren Buffett for the last 50, 60 years. You've done very well. Um, Bill so, Stewart's. 
Yeah, Bill Sturtz, exactly. So, you know, any of those people profiled in The Outsiders, right? So, you know, Howard Jonas is less known. I think he he is uh, he, he has a phenomenal track record, and I think that people are going to know more and more about him um, as, as, as time goes on. But, um, you know, so Howard started a company called IDT Corporation in 1990. And um, IDT, they are in the, the communications and payment services business. And um, they've done a great job managing that business, but they've also talked about how, you know, the international minutes business has been in decline from free VoIP providers like Skype, which we're using right now, or, or um, you know, WhatsApp. So what they've done at IDT is they've effectively managed IDT's uh, cost structure, and they've maximized that cash flow, and they've taken the cash from the legacy business, and they've, you know, effectively bought a basket of, of growth initiatives um, within IDT. And um, there's still several growth initiatives still within IDT, but a lot of those they spun off. So if you look at Howard's um, track record, and, and like I said, he started IDT in 1990. But if we just start in January 2010, since January 2010, Howard has spun off five different businesses from IDT. And he sold the sixth, after which he paid a, a special dividend. But he's um, he spun off uh, uh, IDW Media. Uh, which we've talked about all of these. I could talk about each one for an hour if you'd like, but he spun off IDW Media in 2011. I think the next spin was Straight Path Communications, which a lot of people will, um, uh, that name will resonate with a lot of people. Why don't you tell us the Straight Path Communications story? Yeah. So, you know, one thing that I've I've found with with Howard is Howard, um, he's a great visionary. Uh, in terms of uh, identifying secular growth stories, you know, what's going to be the big um, what's going to be the big thing tomorrow. So so the first company I mentioned, IDW Media, um, he bought that company in the 2000s. It's the, the fourth largest comic book company in, in the world, which is misleading because a 99 percent of comic book sales are Marvel and DC. So it's 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 a very small base. Um, but he bought that company Um and then he he took some of the cash flow that the comic book company was generating and invested in a television production business. And this was in 2009. And anyways, they have three shows that will um, be premiering in Netflix in the next on the, uh, the next six months. But but once again, when I talk about a secular growth trend, I think he's identified, you know, streaming and valuable content's going to be in high demand. And I actually listened to your bit uh, recently on Netflix as a as a as a short position, and we're short Netflix too. I think um, the world of streaming, the companies like Netflix are going to get hurt. Uh, the companies that are going to do very well are the the owners of of valuable content like an IDW Media. So, anyways, he spun off IDW Media. The second spin was Straight Path Communications. Once again, I think he he identified a secular growth trend. So in two thousand one. Howard basically bought a hodgepodge of spectrum licenses off um, Winstar Communications out of bankruptcy. And this was in 2001. He paid $50 million. Um, bought that under the IDT umbrella. And then he, uh, 12 years later, spun off that hodgepodge of spectrum licenses into a company called Straight Path Communications. Um, well, last year there was a bidding war between AT and T and Verizon, and Verizon ultimately won and uh, paid 3.1 billion dollars for Straight Path Communications, and Howard Jonas on 20% of the company. So, 
Um, that was obviously a big exit. He had a big billion dollar exit earlier on in his career. Um, so post straight path, he spun off uh, Zedge. Uh, we are actually the largest shareholder of Zedge. We own 15% of the company. That's an exciting asset. And then most recently, he spun off Raphael Holdings. So Raphael Holdings, um, it's a holding company. He spun, he spun it off from IDT with uh, cash, about $50 million of cash, uh, real estate, uh, with book, which has a book value of $50 million, and that's IDT's headquarters. And then uh, two stakes in, um, in uh, uh, biopharma assets. So the most exciting would be a 56% uh, interest in a company called Raphael Pharmaceutical. And Raphael Pharmaceutical, <clears throat> um, they're basically uh, uh, developing therapies for difficult-to-treat cancers um, based on the AMD platform, which is um, altered uh, cell metabolism. Um, so you have chemotherapy, you have immunotherapy. Well, the AMD platform, uh, the medicine is designed to, to target the mitochondria of just the cancer cells and leaves the healthy cells alone. Um, so you don't have the same side effects that, that, that you do with chemotherapy. But, but anyways, what's interesting, when, when it was first spun, it had a $100 million market cap, which was basically uh, you know, equal to book value at the time. And you have this option stake in, in these, in these pharm pharmaceutical companies, which have had you know, tremendous results in phase one trials. They now have two drugs in phase three trials. Uh, the one they're most excited about is a, is a phase, phase three trial for pancreatic cancer. In, in phase one trials, they treated uh, 15 patients, and uh, three of those patients are in complete remission. And this is a this is a, a cancer where their survival rate is less than one percent. So you know, it's a little bit of a I, I guess a speculation on the the biopharma side. But keep in mind that this was spun, um, and you know we we're basically getting real estate and cash, and that was equal to the market cap at the time. Yeah. So you got three options in those in those two yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and then since then the stocks run, so that's not necessarily still the case. Um, you know, but this is, uh, you know, Howard Jonas is, is the chairman of the company. He is largely funding, um, the company, you know, through trials. And with that, when he originally got involved, um, the cat, the, the, as you know, with, with early stage tech and biotech, um, you might have a great technology, but you you fall short of the the, the finish line, and right. and you run you run out of money. So, you know, Howard was 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 kind of that that, that capital injection, and in return, um, you know, has this fifty six percent majority stake in the company through IDT, and um, you know he's 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 all in, and and he's spending, you know, a, a great deal of his time on this company, and. Um, you know, I, I, it, it's somewhat of a bet on Howard Jonas, but, but several things have happened over the last six months that I also think kind of de-risk the investment. So they just, you know, they just signed a big deal with, with Ono Pharmaceutical of Japan where, where, the, you know, they are going to, you know, um, market that drug in Japan and, and they're going to pay, uh, Raphael, a, a low double digit royalty on sales. And, and they just, um, you know, announced uh, trials in Israel and parts of Europe. So I think as they as they do that, it also de-risks, um, you know, the investment from from an FDA decision in the United States. Got it. So uh, let's just go back to IDW. You said what, what yeah. are the uh, what are the comic book characters that it has, and what are the shows that are coming up? 
Yeah, so so I, this has kind of been a a, 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 a long term investment for us, and and there are some you know stumbling blocks in the road, but but as I mentioned, you know Howard bought ID, IDW Publishing in in the early two thousands. In 2009, uh, it was paying a small dividend. In 2009, he canceled that dividend and invested the cash in, in, in taking its IP and turning it into television shows. And they had two shows pretty early on. Um, they had a show called Winona Earp, which was based on one of their, their comic book characters, and that was on Sci-Fi. And then they had Dirk Gently on BBC America. Um, Winona Earp is going on season four. Dirk Gently was canceled after season two. And there's a, kind of been this lull where there's been, um, you know, you know, nothing lately. Uh, they have had three shows uh, picked up for Netflix. So V Wars and October Faction will both premiere on Netflix before the end of the year. So in calendar year 2019, and then um, uh, their best selling IP ever is a, a Lock and Key, which was written by Joe Hill, Stephen King's son. And that was picked up by Netflix and will premiere in early 2020. So, you know, what's interesting is, you know, once again, and, you know, one thing that I, I didn't mention earlier. So we look for companies run by owner managers. We want to buy into that asset at what we think is a, a reasonable price. But then third, I think if you could identify a, a company where there's a breakout business, I think that's very interesting because, you know, as we know, if you're a value investor, um, you could buy things that are cheap, but usually things are cheap for a reason, and that's because no one wants to own them. Right. Um, so if you could identify, so if you could identify some sort of catalyst, and that you know that could be a, a hard catalyst or a soft catalyst, but if you could find a business that where where is the, there's this breakout business where you know revenue is going to grow significantly, maybe that could be the catalyst. So you know, in I in IDW Media's um, uh, case right now, if you looked at the at the income statement all of the revenue is generated by the publishing business. Um, well, so entertainment was uh, generating revenue before Dirk Gently got canceled and there was kind of an interruption with Wine on Earth. But, um, you know, they've, the, the company has already said that viewers in October Faction, those two shows will contribute $27 million in new revenue uh, to the entertainment division in the fourth quarter or, or in, um, you know, the end of the year here. And then Lock and Key is done on a um, like a, a a producer fee, so it'll be two and a half million licensing fee from Netflix and revenue, but that'll go directly to the bottom line. And then Winona Earth is about eight million in revenue. So here you have a company that, if you look last quarter or the last calendar year at the income statement, the entertainment division is is doing zero, and the entertainment division is going to be doing thirty five to forty million the next 12 months. So, you know, once again, this is a business where everybody's focused on the publishing asset, but there's this entertainment asset that's going to have significant income state contribution. How, how in, material in, in is that future. to, uh, to IDW? Yeah, I mean, it'll, it'll double its revenue. Right. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, that's interesting, you know, and, and, and once again, I think that you need to underwrite every investment separately but, you know, IDW Media, Zedge, Raphael, Raphael um, I don't, IDT, I don't know that we would be in, um, invested in any of these businesses if it weren't for, you know, Howard Jonas. And, and um, you know, we've, we, we've taken a lot of time in, you know, studying him, reading about him, meeting him, spending time uh, with the, the management teams at the different companies to feel 
you know, very comfortable, but, but once again, you know, it's in, I, I mentioned all these spinoffs. So had you, had you invested in the 90T corporation in January of 2010 through today, if you were invested in 90T plus all the spin codes, um, your compounded return is about 50% per year wow. versus 10 versus 10% for the S and P 500. So, you know, I think the results speak for themselves. And if you look at what he's done and, and, and his successes, um, it would suggest that that a closer look at at his actions is warranted. Well, who, who is he? What, what's what's his? I, I've never heard of the name before. Where where does he come yeah, from? Yeah, what's well, funny and mo- mo- most people haven't. Most people haven't. And um, you know, but but like I said, it's, he he didn't just emerge recently. He started IDT in 1990, and he's built a you know a great business. And you know, I, I really what he did is um, you know think of the like uh, the, the international you know callback. He he basically pioneered that business, and then he's he's constantly, um, you know, the, the company's morphed to keep up with the times. And then you think back calling cards. Remember when you know you would use calling cards? IDT kind of pioneered that, like the prepaid too. card. Yeah, yeah, they right. pioneered that business, and 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 he's you know continuing. You know, in the early two thousands, he talked about how he felt the the, the, the telecom uh, business had become um you know, too commoditized so he uh, bought a small children's programming studio and and basically built a company called idw entertainment and he built idw idw entertainment over a series of years and in 2005 he sold ID, idw entertainment to john malone the liberty media for 500 million dollars and that was kind of his first um um you know, one of his first big successes. And then he, he took that, that cash from selling that business to John Malone and, you know, invested in, in a lot of these other growth initiatives. Right. So I think the one spin that we didn't discuss was Zedge. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so Zedge is really interesting. So Zedge, um, I feel like, well, obviously Raphael, I feel like, like, like the risk is, is muted and the potential return is, is, you know, infinite. Um, and, and, and Zedge is similar. You know, Zedge is the smallest company. It has a $15 million market cap right now. And um, he bought Zedge in the... So when he sold IDW Entertainment to John Malone, he used the cash from that sell and he bought two assets. He bought IDW Publishing and he bought Zedge. And both are, are kind of in the, in the content space. And Zedge, um, you know, was founded as, as a wallpaper and ringtone app, which, <laughs> um, you know sounds kind of silly and we, we thought it sounded kind of silly too so we received our shares from the spin but we never really bought more into it and um there was a an acquisition uh two years ago that really changed the way i've used edge so so this was just in the fourth quarter of 2017 um zedge bought a company called freeform development and and they retained its its founder a gentleman by the name of tim tim quirk and I was kind of, um, you know, fascinated by that, right? What's freeform development? Who is Tim Quirk? Um, so I kind of, you know, dug in a little bit more, and I actually found a great podcast with Tim Quirk, and uh, that really changed um, the way I thought about Sedge. And 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 what I realized, so so, so wallpapers and ringtones, as silly as that may seem, Zedge has 35 million monthly active users, which is a huge number. Right. I mean, I mean, find an independent, an independent app that's not already owned by Google or Facebook um, that has that sort of user base. 
So really, what, what's the product? What, what's the, what's the product look like? Because I I do remember uh, yeah. ringtones and wallpapers being huge business. And I saw somebody, yeah. I saw it on Twitter. Somebody tweeted out a stat saying something like, and I'm going to get the timing wrong, but it could be ten or fifteen years ago. That was like a five billion dollar a year business. That because yeah. just because of the way that phones have developed, it's no longer such. It's no longer as big as that. But so what? What are these guys? Yeah. What's the pro, what's the consumer getting when they? when they buy these things? Yeah, well, so they still have 35 million monthly active users. So, so you know, people are still interested in that core product. But, but you know, then I think you need to take monthly active users to daily active users to hourly active users. So, you know, what makes Instagram or, you know, you know Facebook or, or, you know, Snapchat, what makes them so popular? It's not that, you know, they have a big monthly active user base, but, these users, they're using it daily. They're using right. it hourly. They're using by the minute. So how do you how do you increase user engagement? But but you know, I, so so when they bought Freeform Development, I kind of sat there once I and I'll talk about Freeform in a second. But but it's it's not about the wallpapers and ringtones. It's about the 35 million monthly active users and how do you monetize that user base? So at the time, Zedge um, they were doing about 12 million dollars a year in revenue and it was all in ad it was all advertising from the big advertising exchanges right so you know you you d- down a little wallpaper and then you have to watch a 30 second commercial so that was 100% of the revenue so you know how do we monetize beyond that so i watched um, this podcast with tim quirk who founded freeform entertainment and he has a really interesting background he he was a a, a musician um, growing up and and then he was one of the um, the early employees at MySpace, and did very well there. And then he was hired by Google, and he was hired by Google to help. He was one of the first employees hired at Google to to kind of build the Android store. Right. And when he was hired by Android, his title was, um, sorry about that. When he was hired hired uh, by Android, his title was was he was the the um, the head of all. Uh, digital content programming and and keep in mind his background's music so you know what he was baffled by at android was you know here we live in this world where in the digital age um, movies books music have all just gotten absolutely pummeled right if you look at um you know music sales uh, they're down in the dump you look at book sales down in the dump movie sales down in the dump because this new digital age piracy whatever it's it's changed everything but the one um uh content category that had been killing it was was mobile gaming and really what mobile gaming had figured out was you know was was this whole freemium model so in his interview the 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 company he uses is he talks about um uh, kings which makes the mobile game candy crush and he talks about how with candy crush um, originally, it was a paid app, and nobody was downloading the app. So then they make it a free app, and they have all these in-app purchases. And by having these in-app purchases, um, all of a sudden, all these people are downloading the game. So there's 300 million monthly active users that that Candy that uh, Candy Crush had built up to. They had 300 million monthly active users, and most people get the game for free, never pay, but the people that do pay are the hardcore fans. So there's only a 3% conversion rate, but out of that 3% conversion rate, Candy Crush was making a billion dollars a year. Wow. So Freeform 
basically took the lessons that he had learned at Android and and applied it to music. So he was doing this this with artists now. So he was taking artists and you know artists instead of giving their content away for free on you know iTunes now <clears throat> there's all these metrics where um, you could unlock music and take different conversion metrics and 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 so the fans not paying for the music but you watch a commercial or you know you 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 take some other action that generates more money for the artist than they would make if the album was free on iTunes in the first place so that kind of really resonated for me so when Zedge bought um, freeform, um, then they were, you know, t take, take what freeform was doing with music and extend that to all content. So artists. So right now, if you go on Zedge app, um, they launched it's Zedge premium. So, you know, they basically now have, uh, it's a marketplace and they have you know, about a thousand different content creators on that marketplace right now from artists to musicians um, and it's it, it's basically providing a, a platform where artists can monetize their their creation. They can monetize their content that otherwise they weren't getting paid for. It, so you know you take a um, you know a dedicated artist who has a day job, and now they have their content up on Zedge, and they're making a hundred dollars a month, let's say. And although that they can't retire, that's that's significant income to to help them do what they what they love. Got it. Yeah. So uh, this is a, this is an odd segue, but uh, this is the way that the portfolio looks. So I have to yeah. kind of ask this question: oh, the, the next biggest holding after RFL is gold. Gold, yeah. So well, you know, I so so I think gold. Um, you know, you mentioned the other day in in the the interview I watched when you were talking about Netflix that you think this is a great environment to short, and and, and you know. And it's funny, let, let me take you through our kind of the genesis of our company. So we started in 2008. Our first five years, our performance was great. I think we were, we were probably top decile. We were raising money. Because of our performance, we grew from 15 million in assets to 200 million in assets. And the last five years has been exhausting. Um, and you kind of feel like you, you're running in place. Um, you've seen all the, all the, you know, the comparisons. Um, you know, basically, if you haven't owned the FANG stocks, and, and some of the, the momentum stocks, it's been very difficult to outperform the market. And, um, you know, I think where my, my philosophy, my process has evolved a little bit is I used to always think uh, bottom up instead of top down. And, you know, part of the problem with that is, is you know, take, take, the, take the reverse of our, of our buy process you know, likewise, if we see companies with massive insider selling and extreme overvaluations, maybe those are candidates for the short book. Well, in this world we've lived in where you have central bank manipulation and money printing and zero interest rates. And, um, you know, basically <clears throat> that's made it impossible to short. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think really what gold is, is it's, it's an investment in, in, um, you know, monetary, uh, uh, you know, a you monetary, short monetary recklessness. Yeah, we're short monetary recklessness, and but once again, I think you you enter that the bottom up part of our process, and we don't own the commodity; we own miners, and then you know you look for the miners, um, miners that are run by the best management team. So 
I think our biggest gold position right now is Barrett Gold. And, you know, you look at, you know, Mark Bristow, who was um, acquired from Rand Gold, and I, I think they're they're the best in the business. So, you know, once again, try to align ourselves with the right management teams. But yeah, so so we do have a good gold weighting and we look we look pretty, pretty silly. Um, What's working now? For a while, but it's working now. Yeah. It should be looking good now. And then the next, yeah. the next holding in there, and this is this is a longer discussion, but you've got some exposure mm-hmm. to uranium as well. Yeah, what, yeah. So what's the, there's a very there's a very long thesis there. So just give us the short one, and then we'll move on to the uranium opportunity. Yeah, so it, it, it's a you know an incredible opportunity. Um, we actually don't feel that we've ever seen an opportunity like this. So we actually launched a, a fund dedicated just to the uranium mining space about a year ago. Um, but, but, you know, just like any commodity, it's a, it's a supply, supply demand imbalance. Um, and it, you know, if you, what created, uh, uh, the, the imbalance, if you go back to 2011, you remember the, the Fukushima, uh, earthquake and tidal wave off the coast of Japan and that tidal wave damaged, one of the nuclear reactors and as a precaution japan shut down their entire nuclear reactor fleet and at the time i, I want to say japan accounted for about 20 uh, percent of world demand um so imagine that you have 20 percent of world demand going away overnight um as a result the the price of uranium fell from you know 70 dollars a pound to to 18 dollars a pound and it's basically been this this uh, you know a, a depression ever since. And and when Japan took the nuclear nuclear fleet off, off the market, you 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 had this uh, you know we, we were awash in supply. And it's taken a long time to work through that supply. Uh, a lot of people have have been involved in this space you know since then, and they've been wrong. And I don't think they're wrong. They've just been really early, but. Um, being early and wrong is the same thing in this business. And so there's been a, a number of things that have happened in the last 12 or 18 months where, where um, we feel that the situation is, is going to reverse in the near term. So what causes the cycle to shift? Yeah, so, you know, like I said, it's supply and demand. So um, right now, worldwide, uh, demand for uranium is about 200 million pounds. And primary supply, I think, is about 130 million pounds. So the difference would be the spot market, or um, and so so what what you had so what what you've had is you've had all this oversupply, you've had all this this um, you know stockpiled uranium, and in the last 18 months, so this is interesting. So go back to 2011. This was a 150 billion dollar industry, and there were you know many 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 players in this industry well today the entire industry is about seven billion so seven billion market cap and 80 percent of that is two producers it's kazakhstan uh kazataprom in, in, in kazakhstan and cameco which is a canadian-based uh, mining company and like i said they represent 80 percent of the supply so in the last 18 months um cameco they uh put their largest um mine macarthur lake on on care maintenance um so that cut their their supply by about 20 percent and uh, uh kazakhstan did the same they they cut their supply 20 percent they just committed to um 
cutting it 20% through next year. So you've had 20% of supply come off the market in the last 18 months. And, and, um, you know, that, 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 that's basically, imagine that that's the equivalent of OPEC saying, Hey, we're going to zero. Imagine what would happen to the price of oil had that happened. So you've had all this supply has come off the market and, um, Cameco, you know, they've said rather than, uh, produce uranium or rather than produce new supply at, at prices where we're not making money, we're just going to buy up the spot market to deliver newer into our long, long-term contracts. So, so just last quarter, uh, they announced that they were going to buy a million pounds off the spot market. Well, they bought about 200,000 pounds and uh, spot moved like to 28. So, you know, the, 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 there's two prices to look at in, in, in the uranium market. You have spot, which is um, very illiquid and, and where and then you have the long term contracting prices and long term contracting prices. That would be the price where deals are struck uh, between the utilities and miners. And, 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 and in the end, spot, spot will trend along uh, long-term contracting. The problem is you've had no long-term contracting for years. So long-term contracting, you're looking at five, six, seven-year contracts. And like I said, there's been no new contracting. And part of the reason is um, because of uh, Section 232, which was di- just decided um, by President Trump. Um, but 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 basically, uh, 18 months ago, the the two U.S. producers, uh, Energy Fuels and your your Energy, they petitioned Section 232 with the Department of Commerce to um, basically uh, uh, look into the role that uranium imports play in our country's national security. So we we are the largest um, uh, uh, consumer of uranium here in the United States. Um, 98% of our uranium is imported, half of which is imported from the sphere of Russia. So, um, you know, President Trump, so, so the, the, the U.S. producers, basically what they asked for is they asked for a quota where the utilities would have to buy 25% of the uranium needs from U.S. producers. And, you know, President Trump basically came forward and he said, well, we're not going to do that, um, but we're going to put together a 90 day working group to, to really help the entire nuclear fuel cycle in the United States. So, you know, I I think basically what president Trump did is he came forward and he said, Hey, look, we're going to help you guys just not at the expense of the utilities. Um, so, so, you know, in the next, I mean, that was 90 days times passed. So, you know, pretty soon I think you're going to, you're going to see some sort of measure taken to, you know, like I said, assist the entire nuclear fuel cycle in the United States. But you know, it's not going to be a, a subsidy or uh, a it tariff. Be. It, could oh, be. it could be something like that. Okay, I see. No, it could be. And, and I actually wouldn't be surprised to see some sort of action taken where, you know, the, the, the U.S. producers are, are, are given a fair playing field as it relates to all the international, you know, because um, it's not a huge difference. But, you know, the price that utilities would have to pay a U.S. producer are a little higher than what they would have to pay, um, you know, a producer in another country where, you know, maybe the fuel standards aren't as high, but, you know, so, so anyways, as I said, and we've seen this when Cameco went into the spot market to, 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 you know, go buy uranium, uh, the spot price moved up pretty quickly. And, um, you know, so, so essentially there's not enough stockpiled. There's not enough on the spot market. We are going to need new supply to, to, to fill that deficit. 
and the cost of production is about 40, 50 bucks a pound. So you're not going to see any new long-term contracts entered into between the utilities and the um, and uh, uh, the miners unless that price is going to be material higher. And as those contracts are as those contracts are struck, you're going to see spot rise. And I think it's going to happen pretty dramatically. And and, and a lot of these companies, you know, I mean. Um, Keep in mind, if you're a development company and you have this, you have this development, but it, it doesn't make any sense to develop your project unless uranium prices are at at fifty bucks. You have a lot of these companies that are trading at options. They're they're trading at, at you know as options. Yet the MPV of that project is you know five x six x seven x. So you know Energy Fuels, which is um, the largest U.S. producer. I think the stocks, it's a $2 stock right now. Well, you know, the la at the last, you know, peak of the uranium market, it was a $250 stock. Right. So, so, so how do you think about, how do you think about playing that opportunity? Are you looking at producers? Or are you looking at the, uh, the, the nuclear energy, uh, forgetting the name of that, um, the developers, the, the explorers, how, yeah. how do you, how do you, uh, how do you play it? Right. So you have you have the, the producers. Um, and, and like I said, you know, keep in mind what I said, 80 percent of production is is is, is two companies. Um, so, you know, you have Cameco, uh, you have a, um, energy fuels is, is produced in the United States. So th there aren't many. And then you have developers and then further down the tail, you have explorers. So really, you know. The position. So in our in our. Uh, kind of main funds or, or the funds that we've been managing for the last 10 years, most of the exposure is in the bigger, um, you know, producing names. But in our new uranium fund, we, we basically have taken a basket approach to owning the, the producers, the developers, the explorers, and, um, and it, you, maybe some companies won't, won't do well, but others will. And we think that basket approach is probably the smartest way to, to play the space overall. That sounds very interesting. So uh, yeah. we're, we're, we're coming up on, on time here, Joe. So yeah. if uh, folks want to get in contact with you, what's the best way of going about doing that? Sure. I uh, go to our, our website, oldwestim, as in investmentmanagement.com, and uh, our contact info is there. If you go to the, the press section of our website, we have all of our, our quarterly letters and manager interviews posted. And I've always said that, that – um, you know, at, at the end of the day, we're, you know, we are concentrated investors. Um, we're all about the names, um, you know, that we own. And so, you know, if, if, if you read all of our quarterly letters, you're, you've basically read 75% of our portfolio. Got it. Love it. Yeah. Joseph Boscovich, Old West Investment Management. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks a lot, Toby.